Tonight, I do not worry about making camp. I just pull our blankets from the canoe and we curl up in them and watch the fire. In a little while, I will have to add more wood to keep the chill away. Nephew breathes calmly. I listen to the sounds of the night animals not so far away. I hear the fox and the marten chasing mice. I hear the whoosh of great wings as an arctic owl sweeps close by. And after that, the almost silent step of a bigger animal, a lynx perhaps, keeping watch with her yellow eyes. I lie here and look at the sky, then at the river, the black line of it heading north. By tomorrow, we'll be home. This is a quote from Three Day Road, a novel by author Joseph Boyden that follows the journey of two young Cree men who serve as soldiers during the First World War. This book won him the inaugural McNally Robinson Aboriginal Book of the Year Award in 2005. This was a Canadian literary award that was presented to Indigenous writers. The only issue here is that it's very likely that Joseph Boyden isn't Indigenous. Extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Joseph Boyden's uncle, Earl, was better known as Injun Joe. Up until he was 60 years old, he would stand outside his teepee at Algonquin Park and sell cheap native souvenirs to tourists there. Posing for pictures in his feather headdress and leather moccasins, he admitted that, as far as he knows, he didn't have a drop of Indian blood in him. But that didn't stop him from pushing native culture to make apparently a pretty respectable living. According to him, earning enough in the summer months to travel for the rest of the year. When Joseph talks about his uncle, he says Earl did know about his roots, but chose to publicly outright deny them. So he spent his whole life playing Indian, while, according to Joseph, denying the actual native blood flowing through his veins. I wonder if it might be that Joseph sees just a little bit too much of himself in his uncle and that makes him uncomfortable. In this episode of Indubitably, Kelly and I will be discussing some of the broader questions that this particular case study brings up. Questions of identity or indigeneity, if you will. What does it mean to belong to a particular community? And if you aren't a part of that community, but want to work on their behalf, when does allyship become appropriation? Provide a little bit of context. There are 574 federally recognized tribes in the United States, 630 of First Nations communities in Canada. We will have to speak generally, but we'll try to make as many specific references as possible. And to help us with that, we have with us today a lawyer who specializes in representing Native American governments. After attending Arizona State University's Indian Legal Program, he went on to work for the nation-leading private law firm Rosette LLP which only represents tribes, to now working with the Tulalip tribes in Northeastern Washington. Welcome to Indubitably, Jonathan Sanchez. All right. Thank you, Kelly and Josh. I'm so excited to be here. I have always loved advocating for tribal governments. And when you guys picked this topic, I couldn't have been more excited to share hopefully some insights with you uh, and my passion for representing tribal governments. Awesome. Yeah. So thanks again for coming and agreeing to be on the show for us. 
So why don't we start with where the questions about Joseph Boyden's ancestry began. And that's with an article by indigenous writer Jorge Barrera in the Aboriginal People's Television Network, a news network in Canada. And this article was titled, Author Joseph Boyden's Shapeshifting Indigenous Identity. And he tracks Joseph Boyden's claims of indigenous heritage over the years, starting in 2005, where Boyden claims to be Mi'kmaq and Métis. Then, just three years later, while still claiming to be Mi'kmaq, he adds in Ojibwe, and later in the year describes himself as Woodland Métis with Irish, Scottish, and Ojibwe ancestry. And Jonathan, you were mentioning that actually there is some controversy over the designation of the Métis in Canada in general. Yes, Josh. So I know just enough to be dangerous here, and I had classmates who do advocate for the recognition of the, of the Métis. My understanding is they were a mixed group who were mixed uh, settlers and Aboriginal. They currently are not recognized by the Canadian government in the same way the other uh, Canadian-recognized bands are, and therefore their members do not have Indian status. Mm-hmm. And um, we did some research on this, and actually, um, you can get the Ontario Woodland Métis membership card for just $20 a year, and if you buy five years, you get the sixth year for free. So um, <laughs> I'm not sure if this is where some of the incredulity over his background stems from. So this is the Baskin-Robbins model or like Subway sandwich punch card model of membership. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, the way that they um, <laughs> market it certainly doesn't contribute to its legitimacy. And to be clear, this is one particular branch of Métis. This is not a criticism that is applicable to Métis across the rest of Canada. Um, so moving on, Boyden's story shifts again. In 2009, he says, my family is Métis. I'm a mixed blood of Irish, Scottish, and Ojibwe, notably dropping the Mi'kmaq reference. And then in 2014, he adds in that he is indeed Nipmuc, quote, discovering the heritage. So Joseph Boyden's explanation for all of this in one of his more recent quotes is, over the last few decades, I, along with some siblings, have explored my family's heritage. We've uncovered and traced a fascinating and personal genealogy, a genealogy often whitewashed of our indigenous ancestry due to the destructive influences of colonialism. While the majority of my blood comes from Europe and the Celtic region, there is Nipmuc ancestry on my father's side and Ojibwe ancestry on my mother's. I think that probably is plausible because I read that the record keeping for ancestry in Canada was not done until pretty recently uh, in the last century or so. So, it, it, you know, it's possible that he was in the process of discovering more traces of ancestry, but do we believe him? I don't know. I, I couldn't say, but I think it's plausible. Not only uh, was there poor record keeping, but there's also a disincentive uh, for uh, holding yourself out as, you know, um, indigenous, um, you know, in, in different historical eras. So uh, especially when you're talking about, uh, 
you know, forced removal, um, or even in the more modern times of the residential schools where uh, Native American children were rounded up and forced into residential schools um, that happened in the United States and in Canada, uh, people wanted to hide their uh, indigenous. Um, and in fact, in many towns in Canada, uh, some of the cultural practices were uh, criminalized and outlawed. It is really common in uh, many indigenous families to have periods of time where your family is straight up denied uh, you know, that connection. And my own family is uh, among them. On my mother's side, uh, they're from the Dulce, New Mexico area, where, uh, which is the home to the Hickory Apache. And uh, when she was growing up, her family was held, held themselves out as Mexican rather than indigenous. So within my own family, claims about how indigenous our family is, is hotly contested. And I have to say, I, I do kind of feel compelled a little bit to tell your viewers a little about bit about my family oral history. Um, so on my mom's side, I'm Alaska Native, um, you know, and the blood quantum would be one eighth. My grandpa was actually adopted out of his family uh, when he was like four or five years old. So he grew. So he definitely was dispossessed from his identity. And it was something that was very difficult. And I don't think he ever got over, got over that. Um, and he always kind of, um, you know, definitely had a hurt in his heart that he carried his whole life that he never was able to, um, you know, find any healing for. Um, and then he met my grandma. Um, on, and this is both on my mom's side, who, as I told you guys before, her family was... <laughs> in some dispute, but probably part Apache, but probably mixed Apache and um, Spanish. Um, and my dad, on my dad's side, were Puerto Rican. So I have this really rare Puerto Rican uh, Arctic connection. Mm. And so in many ways, I feel like um, I definitely understand the desire and yearning to reconnect, um, you know, with one's identity and the way I've decided to actualize it was to be an advocate for those, you know, who are closer to their uh, tribal communities um, than, than I ever will be um, and give them the opportunities so that, you know, that uh, dispossession doesn't continue happening. And so even within oral histories of individual families, uh, there's uh, tons of debate about what identity means. Mm. And I think this is probably what he's talking about when he says a genealogy often whitewashed of our indigenous ancestry due to the destructive influences of colonialism. I, I'm, I'm imagining if he does have this indigenous um, background that they would go through a lot of this, a lot of similar things to what you're talking about. But what I find is interesting about that is even if we grant him that he does have an indigenous bloodline, there... Um, there's a Canadian research chair of Indigenous Studies at the University of Alberta, Kim Tallbear. And despite that she studies the role of DNA testing and the way that it intersects with the idea of race, she says, quote, that Boyden's understanding of Indigenous identity looks like a very white settler understanding, which is really telling. Indigenous people are more concerned with what connections you have to existing communities and families than what percentage native blood you have. 
It's not about some long ago ancestor that you might or might not be able to name or prove, end quote. So I think this brings us to, to the first question of the episode, which under this idea of examining indigeneity um, is A, who defines it, who gets to define it, and then B, how do they define it, right? What method is appropriate? So why don't we start with A, who defines it? And I know, Jonathan, you had some interesting uh, legal ideas under this. Who gets to define uh, whether you're indigenous, at least as a legal matter in in, in the United States, um, one of the most bedrock principles of federal Indian law is that the tribal governments have exclusive authority to define their own membership. And generally speaking, most tribes, and so, but as Kelly said, there's 574 federally recognized tribes. So generally speaking, the, what they have in common is um, a person must have Indian blood and be regarded by his or her community as Indian. And so the definition was always, or the definition was always uh, vested with the tribal government to define who is Indian. And I think this is a distinction that we'd talked about before we started recording was, uh, I know in the United States, it's typically no longer preferred to use the term Indian, at least socially, but legally, this is still a term that has a, a, a very specific definition to it. Yes and no. So there is a, you know, is a tremendous amount of diversity, but I have tons of people in, in my travels across the United States with various uh, tribal nations. Some people are very proud of even socially of the term Indian. For example, like two of the most prestigious, you know, social movements, one was the American Indian movement came, you know, the 60s and 70s. I have a lot of clients uh, who are very proud of their involvement there. And then one of the most prestigious lobbyist groups is the National Council of American Indians, NCAI. I think amongst the younger generation, it is a term that's being less favored. Um, in addition, even the word tribe is is one that's evolving. And I see uh, a huge movement towards using the word nations. And, you know, like I said, some of these are legal terms of art. And I try my best to um, be with the times. I definitely like the word nations, um, but sometimes I might use the word tribe myself. So what would you say to, I don't know, a, a white liberal such as myself who may have conditioned themselves not to use the term Indian, but that is legally how it's utilized in a lot of different contexts? What comfort level do people have with people outside of their community using that word? One thing I do acknowledge when I am in various reservations, um, talking to whether it's like a government or talking directly to the people. I, I acknowledge to them that I am an outsider as well, um, but the term Indian is pretty much used. So I, I think calling someone an Indian would be fine, um, even socially, because it just is so well accepted. But honestly, if you wanted to be the most polite, I think calling them by the specific name of the tribe would probably be you know, your best practice. So rather than call it someone Indian, you might just say, you know, member of the Grand Traveler's Band or something like that. Mm. Um, I, I personally, if I'm referring to, um, you know, the tribe I work for, I would say Tulalip tribal member. I like that suggestion, actually. I think that referring to someone's specific, you know, tribe or nation also just recognizes, like we said up front in the episode, there's 574 
federally recognized tribes in the country and that you you are at least acknowledging that they're not all homogenous um and and interested in maybe that individual's specific uh background which i i don't think is ever going to be a bad thing absolutely and so so that's a lot of the legal instance in the United States. So in the United States, you're saying that the the federal government has given the power to each individual Native American tribal government to exclusively define their own membership. But I think it's slightly different than that in Canada, which where which is where Joseph Boyden is from. Yes. So the Canadian government passed, uh, it's called the Indian Act. One of the things that Canada does is it defines who is a member of, um, you know, their recognized tribes. However, in the 70s, just like here in the United States, there's a growing political movement and uh, tribal members all across Canada said, your administration um, of you know, defining membership has been terrible. Um, it's been under-inclusive. It relies too much on documents. So then the pendulum swung and Canada and a lot of their non-governmental institutions are relying on self-identification only so this is where like saying i am indigenous or not is not just some sort of theoretical and ephemeral type endeavor it's not the same kind of identity of saying i'm a cowboys fan or or a or a washington football team's fan yeah yeah (laughs) don't don't even go there josh jeez (laughs) yeah so this is not like you know a social club identifying with you know, a distinct political entity is a little bit different. Mm. And so, so that, that self-identification is what allows for a case like Boyden to even exist, huh? Yes. A case to exist in the sense that it would take national headlines, like your crazy uncle making, um, you know, uh, claims about your family at a family barbecue. Sometimes at the end of the day, you can shrug your shoulders and say, who cares? It doesn't really impact anyone else. Uh, whereas here it, it does. Mm. And so I guess this brings us to the second question, regardless of who's defining it, in general, there's a couple of different methods for it to be defined. And the first one is seemingly the stance that Boyden takes, which is establishing a claim through a bloodline. And again, interestingly, we have the quote by Kim Tallbear saying that that's a very white settler understanding of the issue. Um, I guess we'll discuss whether or not that's true. And then besides a sort of DNA mentality, the second way is acceptance. Um, So is acceptance into any particular community inherited through genealogy, or does it have to be earned? For number one, this sort of bloodline methodology, I guess the first question is, is a DNA test a legitimate way of proving that you are a member of a particular community? I have a question about that also, because this i can't help but consider what happens in the united states in our history when we think about the one drop rule for black americans so at what point is there a substantial genealogical history is it just that there's a, a dna lineage or does there have to be a specific quantity of ancestry involved mm. I, th- these are all really nebulous legal questions to me that's a great question kelly and I, it does show that, at least in the United States, uh, there is two very different viewpoints from, you know, white supremacists existing at the same time. Whereas, you know, in Plessy v. Ferguson, they rule one drop makes you non-white. 
but with American Indians, you had to prove a certain uh, quantity of quote blood. But the thing is, is like today, um, blood quantum is is used by many tribes, and it and so with even within um, different tribal peoples and advocates, it's hotly contested and controversial. But let's let's say let's take Boyden's claims on face value and say that he does have a bloodline here, or or you know, a hypothetical person A does have a bloodline, and their family for whatever reason decided to reject that part of their heritage, and for the last couple of generations have moved away from it, and now, you know, hypothetical person A discovers that and says, okay, I want to reinvestigate this part of myself. They've moved away from the community, so they wouldn't have a community claim or a lived experience claim to being uh, any amount indigenous, but they do have this genealogy. Does that not give them some claim to whether it's social acceptance or legal status? That is a very interesting question, and my answer is no. I don't think it gives them uh, any kind of claim. I call this like the 23andMe phenomenon, and it's exacerbated by public figures like Boyan. Here in the U.S., we have the example of Elizabeth Warren, where we say some sort of biological marker means you're, quote, 6% indigenous. To me, stuff like that is pretty offensive and, and borderline obscene. And I really don't think that part of the DNA test mentality is legitimate. But I, I do think it could be a proxy for lineal descent, which is legitimate. and so. That may be sounding like I'm, I'm splitting hairs a little bit, um, but like I said, one of the definitions in my mind of who should be considered indigenous is the descendants of peoples that were uh, setting themselves aside as distinct political and legal communities. Uh, so just because there's some sort of marker that some egghead scientist uh, says this marker means you're indigenous or not, it, I, I don't think there's an individual ownership of indigeneity, I think there has to be recognition within the communities. Um, and so to me, self-identification is not legitimate. There has to be that second prong of, yes, descendancy is part of it, but you also have to have acceptance within you know, an existing community. So allow me to play devil's advocate here. Let's say that people are doing their genealogical testing and they find out that they have some percentage of, of characteristics that could trace back to being potentially indigenous. They are not accepted into those communities because of reasons that happened generations before them. So they didn't really have a say on whether or not they could be stakeholders in these communities. Does there is there any legitimacy in the idea of upon learning about your history, starting to reincorporate yourself into those communities? Or is that kind of a shut door? because they were removed from it by their parents or grandparents or so on. Well, I, I think that brings us to the second question here or the second method, which is if acceptance is not inherited, then it does have to be earned. And I think to, to mirror what Jonathan's been saying, you know, there was a Métis writer, Aaron Paquette, who, who says, quote, it's not about blood. It's about community. It's about who claims you which I think is an interesting distinction because you have you know, the, the author Boyden claiming these particular communities, but you know, according to this writer, he's saying it's not about who you're claiming, it's about who claims you. 
I personally really like that view because it does enhance, um, you know, tribal sovereignty. And that's some concept I fight for in my profession every day. Um, and it gives power back to, uh, you know, the, the tribal governments and all of their constituent members. So I, I really like that. And traditionally, many of these tribal peoples had more flexible views of kinship. And it had to do with what is your role in the here and now community um, had pretty fluid views of who can be a member. I'll give an example, a story that I've heard from a very esteemed professor from Michigan State University. His name is Matt Fletcher. He tells a story about the Hagen Potawatomi. And one of the first uh, chairmen of the tribe actually was adopted into it. And so if we took the modern membership criteria, he wouldn't actually be uh, a member uh, you know, uh, of that tribe, even though he was the one that was actually representing the tribes in the treaty making. And so I do think that in uh, modern conception, there is room for these more traditional views uh, to reemerge. So that's so that's interesting because we had said, even if you have the genealogy, but you haven't been part of the community, then you don't get to claim that community. But in that case, it's, it almost seems that it, it's not just that, but even more so, if you do something for the community, whether you have the bloodline or not, you could be considered like authentically part of that community. Yes, absolutely. And Matt Fletcher calls this the citizenship model, where he actually proposes to, uh, well, it is a, I don't want to go so far as saying that he's actually endorsing this, but it is a view that he's talking about where, you know, to become a, a citizen of the United States or Canada, for example, this is an analogy he usually draws from, uh, you know, you have to have, say, a written citizenship test. You have to demonstrate you represent the values and things like that. And you have to be accepted, you know, by those political entities. But uh, once you are, there isn't like a blood quantum to be like, how, what percentage of American are you? Mm. So I, I guess what, to me, what makes this complicated then, and again, we can use uh, Joseph Boyden as our example, is there are people who have claimed Boyden as part of their community. While the vast majority, I think, have not, there are uh, at least a couple of relatively credible sounding individuals who have. So for example, Cree novelist Frank Bush, who uh, wrote the novel Gray Eyes, which actually featured a dedication written by Boyden, he said that people have chosen to misinterpret and twist his words for their own agenda. Joseph Boyden is indeed an indigenous person with a better claim than most and has done more for indigenous people, including myself, than all of his naysayers combined. And beyond just him, there's also an author and politician, Wab Canoe who defended Boyden's um, novel, The Arenda. And he also said, similarly, that Boyden's contributions to Indigenous communities and just the general national dialogue on the relationship between the state and the original peoples shouldn't be forgotten amid questions of his ancestry. He says, quote, I myself have been curious about Joseph Boyden's ancestry, but at the same time, I recognize that he is part of our community by virtue of the relationships he has formed with many people. I think for many people who find out about their indigenous ancestry later in life, there's a lot of questions about how do they belong. I think the way he has gone about giving back to the community, particularly into the James Bay region, 
taking kids to hunting camps, doing some philanthropy in some other areas, and to highlight up-and-coming writers, giving them residency, they are all signs that he's giving back. Yeah, so one assumed um, intellectual leader, Philip Deloria, always said that colonialism and and, uh, capitalism were the two twin engines of you know, destruction of native peoples. And here, uh, I, the thing I, that I noticed is his two main defenders are in the book publishing industry. So, uh, and, and all of the things that they're saying that he's done are all monetary in nature. Um, and, and so I just do wonder out loud, or at least my skepticism is, uh, is, you know, some of that support uh, because he's able to have lots of influence because he's a very successful writer, you know, in the industry. So I'd be really curious, you know, um, to see if uh, there are any other people that come out uh, in his support that don't have a financial gain mm. uh, in supporting him. When you have these financial incentives and you look at, you know, individual quotes and individual behaviors, I'm like, yikes. Um, it, it just gives me tons of pause to concern. It's like a really brilliant PR move by Boyden because it kind of uh, gives us of legitimacy when we're not hearing like a proclamation from any of the Canadian, you know, recognized uh, tribal groups or, you know, maybe a joint statement by a tribal community saying, we claim uh, Mr. Boyden and this is all the things that he's doing and embodying in our communities. You're not really seeing that. Right. So when I hear that there are only a couple of people who are coming to bat for him of the groups that he has some claim to for his genealogy, it reminds me a lot of when people do the, well, I have a friend that's in that marginalized group, so it's okay that I do X, Y, or Z because they signed off on it, essentially. And aside from that person not being representative of the group as a whole, like you're discussing, that is patronizing tactic to kind of use them as an extrapolation to like the community at large, like they're a a tool rather than an individual. So that, that all strikes me as being, I'm very uncomfortable with how that whole um, advocacy he's experiencing from these two people. Mm. And I guess that, that brings us to these, these sorts of financial considerations brings us to the next question, which was um, why would somebody even want to, misrepresent themselves as a part of this community, right? What are they what are they benefiting from this status? For some people, it is a form of escapism, especially in relation to if they want to reject the dominant society and the harms that the dominant society has done. Uh, it's kind of their way of trying to connect with that stereotypical utopic um, other stereotype that they may have. Um, some people have called that noble savage. And I don't think that there's any shortage of examples of, you know, white individuals appropriating other cultures, right? Because they want to see themselves as a member of that culture. Um, we could, we could cue Eminem music right about now. (laughs) So I guess there's this existential desire to, to live in a way other than we live right now, but also there's obviously, um, some, some monetary incentives to, to try to claim indigeneity as well yeah i think the one thing all of uh you know these high profile cases all have in common is they're seeking something that's pretty prestigious or lucrative um you know people aren't self-identifying to do unheralded work 
I don't want to be classist and give examples of, you know, things that are unsung heroes of, you know, societies or, uh, but we can all kind of picture that for ourselves, what that might be. You know, we're talking about, uh, you know, famous authors. We're talking about actors. We're talking about um, people <clears throat> um, curating art galleries. Um, so I, I think there is sort of like a shift in our modern society. And I think it stems from the desire of correcting past harms to give indigenous peoples like new voices in uh, society. Uh, but, and I think opportunistic individuals are seeing that, that void and, and are trying to fill it. So um, before in the intro, we talked about how there is a, uh, <laughs> a, a so-called band of Métis where you can pay $20 to get a citizenship card. Uh, there's the equivalent here in the United States uh, called the Eastern Band of Cherokee. Um, the brother-in-law of minority leader Kevin McCarthy got such a minority card, even though he can't really demonstrate any, he can't even do what Boyden did um, with a spurious genealogical record. So he, he doesn't even have that. Um, and with that fraudulent membership card, he's uh, been awarded $7 million in no-bid uh uh, contracts from the Small Business Administration, which is set aside specifically for uh, minority-owned businesses. Hmm. So I guess you know it's pretty obvious that there there's some benefits to misrepresenting yourself as a part of any particular native or indigenous nation. But you know, I'm curious. There there are people out there who are doing it. I think with good intentions in mind. Um, they're obviously getting something from it, but also they want to give back to these particular communities, whether they just feel that it's a, a cause that they care about or whether they feel personally identified with them. So I guess my question is, is there a point where you've done enough good for that community that it could overcome a questionable bloodline or, or warrant inclusion into the community? Maybe if we look at Boyden as a as a specific example and ask, you know, what has he given to the community and what has he taken away from the community? Is there a, a net benefit that he could provide that that could make his spurious claims okay? In my view, no. And, and but here's why is because I think one thing that I hold pretty dear, and I know a lot of my colleagues um, also hold dear. As well as a lot of my, you know, clients hold very dear. And that's the idea of authenticity, um, being true to yourself, and not saying untruthful things. Because um, <clears throat> I, I do think, at least with Boyden, I, I see an intent to deceive. Um, but if you know we set this aside and he didn't try to cloak himself in an identity that he doesn't have, but if we imagine a different scenario in which he says, you know, I, I saw this. Um, ancestry. I didn't know much about it. Um, and it was the reason um, I started contacting and reconnecting and just been more upfront with this story. Then I think that's a whole other ballgame. And in fact, that's like my personal story. Um, I am, you know, a descendant on my mother's side. Uh, I'm Alaska native. I have one eighth blood quantum. I'm considered a descendant. And usually when I tell, introduce myself and tell people about that, uh, what I'm trying to tell them is this is how I got interested in this field and why I fight as an advocate for my tribal clients. So they have the legal infrastructure 
in the room to make these kinds of you know very important decisions about who are we as a people. I would never substitute my value judgment for theirs, and I would never try to tell them um, what they should or shouldn't be, and I would never speak on their behalf in a way that was deceitful. And uh, some of the things that I find very, I guess, grotesque about Mr. Boyden is he spoke as a witness um, with the um, as an honorary witness for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and I just find that so grotesque. That's where I think this whole discussion with him makes him very different. Where there's nothing that he can do, in my opinion, to redeem himself, um, because that level of suffering that the people in residential schools uh, suffered, and for him to say that he's learned enough or had enough DNA tests done or whatever in order to speak and represent that spirit, uh, to me, is just irredeemable. Well, and I think I think that brings up the the issue though is a lot of people and and the supporters that we cited before would point to the fact that Boyden through his writing and I mean we can't really deny at any point and well, we haven't denied at any point that he's a fantastic writer um is able to bring attention to these issues and able to speak and and cause for positive traction for these communities inside of you know Canadian politics in a way that hasn't really happened in the past so at the point where he's making, you know, tangible improvements or, or providing tangible benefits to these people, both legislatively and then in turn on the ground, does that give him some sense of credibility, or so does that does that lessen maybe the the crime, quote unquote, that he's committing by spuriously claiming community? I I really don't think so, and I I really don't think he's actually added uh, in a benefit. So I actually did read some excerpts of Berenda. And then what I was really curious, though, about uh, was to see how Indigenous people have viewed his works. And so some of the storytelling trips that he has, um, I, I see why he's won awards, you know, from Canada, which is a colonial power, because, you know, it's the tropes that he uses um, is very comforting, I, I think, to uh, colonialists and, and Canadian nationalists. And, and here's why is just like the U.S., the emergence of Canada as a settler nation uh, does rely on the destruction of Indian peoples to be number one justified and number two inevitable. So, you know, this whole storytelling trope of the tragic Indians being collateral in the march towards progress it is a huge component of his uh, book, Arenda. Uh, and so it justifies you know, some of the present day treatments of uh, Indian peoples. Did you guys know that a tribe can't own its own land? When you look at the uh, title on lands that are owned by federally recognized tribes is actually, they don't own the land. The United States does. They're just the beneficiaries of it. So just like these continued racist and colonial structures still exist. And these kinds of stories that reinforce that, you know, um, Indians were uh, this tragic other um, and can't manage their own affairs is reinforced by his works, in my opinion. That's really interesting. So at this, at the same time that he's speaking out in political forums to supposedly, you know, push native rights forward, um, the the books that he's making his living off of are actually reinforcing, you know, a mindset that actually does the opposite. So it's really interesting considering all of the support 
that we've heard um, in his favor that it it sounds like this is native writing for white people, more or less. Um, It's really like the audience is definitely intentional when you're playing into stereotypes like that. So his defenders come out and say he's doing something that is culturally important, that is representative of these communities, that is necessary without considering all of the other people who could be prominent as a result of the awards that he's winning instead of them and the attention that he's getting instead of them. So in particular, there was the McNally Robinson Aboriginal Book of the Year Award, which there's a $5,000 cash prize, which is pretty substantial. But moreover, it's the actual distinction of having that award as an author that gives him even more prominence. When looking at this information, I had the question of, do the award committees have an obligation to vet the authors that are considered? But considering everything that, Jonathan, you've told us about how self-identification is kind of the core of, of the way things are done in Canada, I guess that that is incumbent upon the people self-identifying in that case. But moreover, when he has this distinction, when he's given these awards, does that raise up other Native authors or is that drowning out other Native authors? And I think from my perspective as a white American, I don't know any other Native authors in Canada. We're talking about Joseph Boyden. So I wonder at what expense (laughs) are we paying so much attention to him, good or bad, essentially? When these voices rise to the prominence that his has, um, it does drown out real voices in, in, especially like the historical placing that he's putting a uh, story, these stories in, uh, also reinforces uh, the fact that people, you know, don't think of Native uh, Native Americans or Indians as uh, living in today. Uh, they don't realize that they're real people living real lives. That's why I think things like reservation dogs is really refreshing because one thing that it Reservation Dogs that I really love is, you know, it is written by a tribal member from Oklahoma. Um, and <clears throat> the one thing that strikes me is like, it doesn't show like this bleak poverty. It's the, the main protagonists of the show are teenagers who are just trying to find their way in life. And, you know, that's very universal. Of course, the setting is, you know, very definitely reminds me of the time, the, the years I lived in Oklahoma, um, you know, and, very familiar characters and, you know, humor and pacing and things like that. But I, what it shows though, is that, you know, it, it's takes place in the modern times. Um, and, and so that's the kind of richness that you get when you don't drown out, um, you know, the real voices, when you give space for uh, people from tribal communities to tell their own stories. I, I love that show as well. I, I really appreciate not only was it, humorous, but there was a really stark acknowledgement of like pain (laughs) and injustice Mm -hmm. in that as well, um, which I think is such a unique thing to see in a television series altogether, but especially one with a comedic angle. So it was just such a unique piece of storytelling altogether. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And and definitely, I think that what we're saying, there, there is an opportunity cost here to where when when one voice is being promoted, other voices by necessity are pushed into the background. And so, you know, even if Boyden's voice is arguably pushing for positive gain in in these communities or for this cause, um, it's still not necessarily a good thing if it's inauthentic. 
so that that brings us to our next question, which is if if we do say that there's at least a degree of illegitimacy to his work, does questioning it actually do any good? And how far should we take? And again, we're not just talking about Joseph Boyden here. We're talking about, you know, individuals who are making potentially spurious claims to their heritage in general. Um, is there a point where questioning those claims can go too far? Uh, so there's a couple of examples here, one of which is an activist, Jackie Keeler, who has, um, and I know we, we we talked about this before the episode that we're not particularly thrilled about the term, but she has a list that she calls her pretendian list. And, um, you know, this has led to Twitter mobs questioning people's identities. And, you know, there's been people, I think four people who are members of federally recognized tribes that were put on it. And then after the scrutiny that they were subjected to, they were taken off, but they didn't receive any retraction. They didn't receive any apologies. Right. So is it possible that this sort of thing can go too far? Absolutely. I think anytime you have like a, a mob questioning something, you know, as personal as your identity, it can be very like uh, scary and it provides a disincentive for people who um, in pretty recent times were forcibly re- like adopted out of uh, reservations and reserves from the forties to the seventies. There is this political movement called the termination era. They actually ended the practice of federal recognition. They disbanded tribal reservations. Um, they tried to like uh, basically privatize uh, you know, these tribal governments um, and they try to push people off the reservation into urban centers. On top of that, from the 1800s on through like the 70s, um, missionary groups were in tribal communities trying to use um, like state CPS pressures to adopt children out of Indian communities. And luckily, the Indian Child Welfare Act was passed to stop some of that stuff. But m- my point is, that you know, when you're talking about a dispossessed people, um, both from a territorial, a cultural perspective, um, there are people who legitimately are trying to reconnect. And when you see this kind of um, mob activism and wholesale rejection, um, you know, it, it is something where it can go too far. Mm. So to um, you know to turn the uh, the lens on ourselves, I suppose not you, Jonathan, but me and Kelly. Um, you know how do we how do we know that we're not doing something like that? And and just for our listeners, this Joseph Boyden thing was my idea. So if if we're doing a bad thing here, it's my fault, not Kelly's fault. Um, Thank you. <laughs> you know. Um, Thank you. How um, how do we know that we're not contributing to something like that when we when we do question somebody like Joseph Boyden, who who is at the it's going to be impossible for us to tell if he's financially motivated or reputationally motivated, but he at least um, has upheld a pretty consistent image of, of caring about this and, and promoting these issues, whether he's benefiting from it or not. Um, how do we know that we are doing the right thing by bringing this to the forefront or, or by questioning his claims or, or bringing attention to the questioning of his claims by, by, um, other people. So I think it's okay to bring up that there is a discussion that's happening, but I don't think that it's okay if we were the arbiters of it. I think that um, we are in a position where we we just need to educate ourselves and listen to 
lots of experts, people who have like lived experience and learned experience on these sorts of things. And when it comes to how we're having this discussion today, I think that's we've been that's what we've been doing is is trying to come at this from a point of we we can't know the answer, which is why, you know, Jonathan, thank you so much again for joining us in, in that regard is we we are not going to be the people who can make that decision. When it comes to any sorts of claims like this or any sorts of questioning of the legitimacy, I just, I defer to the people who are the most likely to be helped or hurt by this sort of discussion, this sort of action, this sort of appropriation. And I don't think that you can define yourself as an ally. I think that the community you're hoping to help gets to determine whether or not you are an ally. But I think in my attempt to be an ally, <laughs> I want to just give my support in these sorts of instances and learn from the people who know best about what, what we should do in these instances. Like maybe we should not buy these books or things like that. Those are things mm. that I can't decide. Those are things that I want to be informed about for making decisions going forward. So I, I don't know that I have any conclusions to bring out of this. Other than I'm just, I'm just here to learn. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and I, I guess that leads us to our last question, which is certainly not unique to a conversation about indigenous rights or or indigeneity, but just I guess allyship in general. And that would be um, obviously some authenticity and just straight up honesty about your own background is a is a prerequisite. But assuming you are honest about your genealogy and if you are not a part of a particular group, but instead identify as an ally, let's say that Boyden was honest about that and said, hey, I'm not trying to claim part of your community, but at the same time, I would like to do these things to help. I would like to speak to the Canadian government. I would like to um, lobby on behalf of these particular legislative measures. What is appropriate for allies? What actions are appropriate for allies to take versus when are they overstepping their role. So what I've been hearing, and again, I don't know a lot (laughs) about the lived experiences of these communities, but what I've been hearing from people in the Black Lives Matter movement is that they don't want allies speaking on their behalf. They want allies carving out space for them to speak for themselves. I guess that reinforces what we were mentioning earlier about Boyden is, is, yes, even if his voice was making some sort of positive traction for indigenous peoples that assumes that there there wouldn't be actual indigenous people who would be able to step up and make that same positive traction or even more authentically for themselves if he wasn't taking up that space exactly i think that there is a way that people in these positions of privilege. So let's take it as he's an exceptional writer. He is white passing. Both of those things give him a lot of privilege where he has a platform, he has popularity, um, fame, whatever. Those are things that he can use to help advance other people into more prominent areas of discourse. It doesn't have to be him. Um, And I don't think it ever has to be one specific person. But if you have the option to hold the door open for other people and you don't do it, and I don't see that he is from the discussion we've had today, then I don't think that you're acting in good faith. 
I think that's so well said, Kelly. Um, Because I think you really hit on one thing that's super important to Indigenous groups, one value that they hold in common. And this is a pretty, this is an area I'm very comfortable making a generality. And and that is the idea of, you know, the right of the collective and of of the group and the idea of uh, an individual owing a responsibility to the group they live in. That is very Indigenous to me. As an attorney, I, I um, I have a certain, you know, set of skills and that's what I offer that my tribal clients, um, and what I fight for every day is their right for self-determination. And, and what that means is, you know, like I said before, in my definition of sovereignty is the ability to enact your own laws and to be governed by them and to give power to, you know, these tribal groups to make their own decisions about who belongs and who doesn't, um, I, I think is the most important thing we can all um, support them on because really we should not be supplanting them, especially when it comes to something as precious as, you know, identity and who belongs, because that is really the last thing that has not been, you know, colonized. You know, that's something that they definitely own is who they are. And, and I think giving space for self-determination is the utmost privilege that I've had in my life. I, I love what I do. It's really easy to fight for the underdog. And I want to share a quote that I, I read by Indigenous author Joy Frederick in Defense Post Sitting and How I Fell Off to One Side. Uh, Joy writes, what allies should do is participate in our writings, feel our visual art, be moved by our music, hear in your heart our stories. Because I, I do think that tribal people are just really stellar. I, I love working in Indian country. and um, I definitely, you should never like use them as a surrogate for your own causes. So for example, if you're like, you're an environmentalist and you assume all tribes are environment environmentalists, like don't try to cloak their indigenous identities because you think it makes your claims better. I guess what I have in mind there is that famous seventies, you know, commercial where they have the person with like the one teardrop, um, that, that was a, uh, uh, a non-indigenous person. A lot of people don't know that uh, that actor was not indigenous. And so just don't do those kinds of things. Don't, don't dress up as Pocahontas for Halloween. Um, you know, don't tell tribal communities how they should, should be, um, but just give them the space to have that voice for themselves. And I'm not trying to embarrass you here, Jonathan, but to me, what's interesting is if your bloodline is one eighth Alaska native, to me, that seems like a pretty, solid representation of the community but but despite that you know in all of our conversations you've you've been very careful about i'm not here to put out my opinion you know this is not what i think right but rather here's what these communities think and and here's what they're trying to accomplish and here's the ways that i'm just trying to facilitate that um and, and i think that's sort of uh, you know i'm not trying to embarrass you but i think it's in stark contrast to you know the person that we we chose to sort of center this discussion around Joseph Boyden. And and to me, you're serving as a good example for what an ally, how an ally should be approaching this, even though you are part of the community, um, uh, at least with a claim greater than the vast majority of people out there. Um, So even though you are going to benefit greatly in terms of your fame from coming on our huge podcast, (laughs) <laughs> um, <laughs> it does seem like the comments you've, you've, you've given it to us today are, are very authentic and, um, 
you know, you know, kind of provide a, a template for would-be allies to follow. So definitely, I know, I know Kelly had thanked you, but again, like, you know, we really appreciate you coming on and spending the time kind of sharing your, your viewpoint with us. I, I want to make it clear. There's no cash prize. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if we uh, needed to specify that, but we're not quite at that level yet. <laughs> we'll give you 50% of all of our earnings so far. Which is negative money. So you technically <laughs> owe us. <laughs> yeah. You owe us for coming on the show. <laughs> Well, well, thank you for those kind words. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jonathan. And to everybody who has any thoughts on these discussions that we've had today, you can definitely reach out to us on social media. Um, We are on Twitter at IndubitablyPod. We can also be found on Facebook at IndubitablyPod. We could have picked a name that was easier to say now that (laughs) I'm thinking about it. Um, It's memorable. Indubitably. Please let us know if you have any um, questions or suggestions or would like to hear from Jonathan again about some of the other topics we touched on. We genuinely enjoy having these conversations and hearing from other people who have lived experiences and stories to tell like this. Um, So for everybody who's listening, thank you. Thank you for joining us today and we will talk to you next time. Bye.